This is an announcement to say that By the Sword annual event for women and non-binary HEMA practitioners will be held at the Guildford Spectrum Sports Centre on the 9th and 10th of April. If you want to attend, please go to our website, bythesword.net and follow the links. Welcome to By the Sword, where we discuss the modern study of historical European martial arts, or HEMA, with instructors, experts and martial artists from all over the world. In this episode of the podcast, I speak to Connor Kemp Cowell of the Philadelphia Common Fencers Guild. We discuss the teachings of Filippo Vardi, competition fencing, and getting the most out of HEMA texts. The episode was recorded on Instagram Live, 16 January 2022. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so Connor Kemp Cowell uh, of the Philadelphia Common Fencers Guild, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank, thanks for having me, friend. It's great. Yeah, you're very welcome. And uh, so I'm I'm in here in the UK, and you're in Philadelphia, USA. And let's hear about how yes. you got into. Oh, I think we're losing connection. Yeah. Here. Can you hear me? Okay. A bit dodgy yeah. right now. I was getting the, the little <laughs> circle of doom there. So let's hear about how you got into swords. How did it all happen? Okay. So, um, well, you know, I, I've always kind of. I, like been around like medieval history my entire life my dad was really big into into like you know kind of like classic like 80s and 90s sword movies but my my real kind of inception for how i got involved in hema was uh, uh you know dungeons and dragons i think everybody can kind of kind of like at least some part of their of their sword history to a tabletop rpg and for me it was uh, i wanted to learn how to describe sword combat better and and D, so I just looked up medieval fencing or like long sword fighting on YouTube and uh, I stumbled across uh, Anton Kodovic's, uh video where he was just going really hard with some of his training partners uh, wherever they're, they're, they're located. I can't remember off the top of my head. And I saw it and I was like, I want to do that. That, that. I want that to be me. <laughs> but uh, at, at, at the time, uh, I, I'm originally from South Jersey. I haven't lived in Philadelphia my whole life. Um, uh, okay. Jersey, specifically Kate May, and there wasn't any clubs around me. So I watched videos and just like kind of were interfaced with things on a low-key level until I moved up to the city. Uh, I found the, the club that I'm currently at and I've been there ever since. Sorry, the, the, the sound quality is really rough at my end. Mm. Uh, I don't know how it is at your end. I can hear um, you perfectly. <laughs> uh, you can hear me fine. Yours is just a little bit, uh, it's a bit sort of the speed is a bit weird i can just about make out what you're saying okay so i um, have a plan let me let me be back give me one second i'll be right there yeah okay so um our guest is just going to reconnect because sometimes the uh connection is rubbish and the sound quality was off for me i don't know about you folks at home but um, it's Connor Kemp Cowell, uh, not Kemp Powell, uh, 
of Philadelphia Common Fences Guild, and tonight we're going to talk about his uh, his studies on Vardy. And he's back, so let's try and add him to the chat. How are we looking now? It's slightly different. <laughs> it's got an old timey, wimey quality, uh, microphone quality, but I can hear you uh, slightly better. Um, so that's how you got into HEMA. Uh, like a lot of people, you were into D&D, your family was into medieval stuff. Uh, you saw some, was it Anton Kutovich on uh, YouTube? Yeah. And you, you, you kind of did your own thing until you moved to a city where you found that there was an established club, which is the Philadelphia Common Fences Guild, which is where you are now. Great. Uh, so tell us about the club uh, and your part in it. Well, you know, I, I wasn't the founder of the club. Uh, a good friend of mine, Graham Mayer, kind of started things off uh, maybe like a year or two before I joined. Um, and then I, 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 I just showed up one day. Um, and I, I practiced as a student for probably a good six or seven months before some stuff came up with Graham. And uh, he unfortunately had to move. So uh, I being uh, like really, really involved and very, very dedicated to practicing HEMA uh, was just kind of like given the role of being head instructor. He's like, you know, you, you put in the most work, you're the person traveling uh, and like getting involved with um, extracurricular events like tournaments and um, uh, going to like uh, seminars and, and the like. And so uh, I, I took over as the, uh, as a head instructor and uh, that's how I've been, how I've been running things ever since. That's, that's pretty much how it often goes, isn't it? So uh, you end up being past the mic, as it were, because you yep. show up the most. <laughs> you've got the most experience. I, I certainly know that's how I ended up uh, being in charge at the School of the Sword. Was, You're the most experienced person here. You're doing it now. Uh, <laughs> which isn't ideal, but I think that's how most of us end up where we are. Um, and I kind of find it a little bit reassuring the kind of adage that you know people who want to be in charge shouldn't be in charge <laughs> yeah yeah you, <laughs> you know, know it's, it's, I, it's kind of like you know if you kind of evolve to end up being in a position of leadership then it's you've kind of got there by by merit rather than just plain old aspiration um so your personal um interest in him everyone's got a kind of niche within a niche your own personal um uh you cut sorry. out there just after you said my sorry. personal someone niche. Was sorry <laughs> someone was trying to call me just <laughs> so your own personal um project within hema mm -hmm. is is the master vardy um yes. i know we've got a few vardyists uh, joining us now in the in the in the view in the viewing section so uh tell us talk to us about vardy for someone who doesn't know who vardy is explain 
Okay. Uh, so the kind of like kind of like the TLDR. I always the too long didn't read. I always give people when I'm trying to describe who Vadi is. I know. We, we we got we got Fiore from like the early part of like the 15th century and like later part of the of the 14th century, 1300 or late 1300s, early 1400s specifically. And then we have the Bolognese stuff and like firmly in like the 1500s after that. And then like at that tail end of the high medieval period and into well. Hmm, at like the at like the tail end of the 1400s, like right when we're about to hit like peak Renaissance period in in Italy, we got uh, we got Filippo Vadi, who uh, wrote a little tiny it's it's a physically a tiny book, um, and it's also uh, super condensed like 16 chapters of fencing advice, theory, and, and and tactical information along with various techniques focused specifically on the longsword with some additional weapons kind of thrown in there, more as window dressing than anything else. Um, and Vadi has kind of operated as like this tertiary or secondary source oftentimes for folks who are more focusing on Fiore um, or who are mo more focused on the later Bolognese uh, sources. Um, and I came to know Vadi uh, as a person who was predominantly interested in Fiore to begin with, um, uh, just through happenstance, uh, through an instructor who came down to teach a class on Spadone uh, by way of Alfieri uh, early into my career. Uh, and I was talking to him about uh, about the, the Italian masters and about Fiore, um, and he kind of pushed me on to Vadi. And, and for me, books have always been a big deal in HEMA. I, I love to read the historical sources because there, there are touchstones throughout uh, our entire practice, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, he, he recommended to me that night when I got home, I, I hit the book and something kind of clicked. Uh, and I, he became my, my steadfast focus through, uh, through my entire HEMA journey so far. Um, uh, Vadi, uh, uh, on a historical level, we don't really know that much about him. Uh, we kind of have like a vague idea of who he was, what he did. Um, he wrote a he, he he likely wrote his treatise, the the, the book that, that we have from him, uh, for a ducal court uh, that was of kind of like great prominence um, and uh, very uh, how would I say um, humanistic uh, for for the period. Uh, this this guy named uh, Guidobaldo de Montefeltro, um, who he like kind of like puts airs on in the beginning of the text, being like, "Oh, you're so awesome and super cool. Let me give you this this work free of charge, wink, wink, uh, so that you may learn my arts." Uh, Is that his yeah. that's his patron? I take it. Uh, well, I, we we think uh, that that was what he was trying to do. the The book does not have the quality. Um, to really make it that a like very like rich person kind of put money behind the text like we mm -hmm. would see with Fiore and then with uh, the, the later sources. Um, the kind of idea that uh, my co-author Ian Davis and myself put behind was that uh, Vadi likely had some type of hereditary station with the Dieste family uh, who were the Dukes of uh, Ferrara, if I recall correctly. Um, okay. And... Uh, his station there uh, was one um, possibly as like a courtier or a retainer. Um, and we found, uh, I, we didn't find, uh, Jamie McKeever, who you've had on before, uh, who I, I, I greatly admire. He's an awesome dude and I love his work. Um, him and a scholar found these poems that were likely, likely written by our guy who wrote this book about him being cast out and like being like betrayed by. <laughs> being, being, yeah. Oh, yeah. There, there, the body is a very, very juicy, juicy, uh, juicy story. Um, 
this. He, he like likely being like kicked out of court and then trying to find a new gig, possibly <laughs> used some family money to make this book and then submit it as like a resume almost yeah. to land himself a job at like this really dope place. <laughs> his book, his pamphlet is kind of like a pitch, I guess. Basically, yeah, that, that, that's the prevailing theory. At that point where we've discovered it. Um, so, yeah, the interesting character. Um, you know, he's an interesting one. I can see why he's sort of fascinating and on, a, on a kind of uh, human level. And what is it about his work that sucked you in? Why, why, do you, why is it so engaging for you? Um, well, the first thing that immediately struck me um, was kind of uh, the, how would I describe it? The way that he discusses the, uh, the actual tactical and technical preferences that he has in the book, you know, mm -hmm. um, and how uh, symmetrical they are. Um, I'm a left-handed fencer. Um, I have been my whole life. Uh, and finding a source that speaks to an ability to use uh, a weapon regardless of your handedness and with <laughs> relatively minor uh, differences in how you approach the fight is kind of a difficult thing to come by until you get to the later sources. And Longsword has always been my, my main focus um, and the Longsword, Longsword uh, texts that we have uh, are all pretty much focused uh, on right-handed fencing with maybe an occasional accent here talking um, about uh, lefties, generally speaking, in, in very minute detail. Um, but the approach that Vadi lays down makes it relatively easy for me to use um, the tactical and, and technical preferences of the source when I go to fence. Um, mm. The other thing is, too, is that, uh, like I said, you know, like this is a later period source and, and uh, kind of like the the mindset of the Renaissance is coming, uh, is, about to, is, about to, is about to be a thing, right? And so you have all of these like little tidbits in the source that really speak uh, to like a very human uh, aspect of, of the author, right? Like Vadi mm -hmm. talks early on in this text about like, if there's anybody who reads his source and finds something that's deficient or that they don't like, uh, remove it and then add what you think is appropriate. He says, you know, if you if you uh, if you can't if, if you find yourself in difficult uh, dif uh, if you find difficulties in practicing what I am writing, you know, exercise and and pushing through uh, to to paraphrase will will help you. And there there's a lot of stuff in there that like allowed me to see the human side of, of the of Avadi as opposed to just kind of like looking at him sterilely and scientifically. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's that, that's one of the big things that, that drew me to the source. Also, the the techniques are really cool. <laughs> <laughs> the techniques are really cool, and there's this kind of connection with the person putting the ink on the page for five hundred years ago. Um, yeah. So you kind of hinted at this, but uh, people may or may not know that you have actually recently published a book on Vardy. Yes, I did. Uh, so yeah, tell us all about it. Okay, so uh, the book is named uh, Wielding the Light of Mars. Um, it was written by myself and Ian Davis. Um, uh, Ian came to me, um, when was it? I think it was like January or February of last year. Um, and he had done a translation of Vadi, just kind of like the bare bones, uh, just like straight one-to-one -one translation from the text um, with, with, with no extra filler on that. 
And he saw room for improvement, as we all do, right? You know, there, there's never anything finished in HEMA, whether mm -hmm. that be working on interpretations of techniques or, or what have you, right? And so he was like, okay, I, I want to go back and do this over again. Um, and I want there to be more added to this. And so Ian and I are, are good friends. So he reached out and he was like, yo, do you want to put your commentary over top of this book? And, um, you know, we, it was still uh, in lockdown times and I had nowhere to put my sword energy. And I was like, well, not doing anything else. Uh, let's, let's go for it. Yeah, no, let's do it. And so I spent the next seven, eight months um, just like writing uh, like a madman, trying to get uh, my words um, and my understanding of things uh, from, my from my brain onto the page in a way that was accessible and that was easy for folks who had never really interfaced with the system or with the Northern Italian tradition uh, as a whole uh, out there. You know, I, I, wanted to, I wanted this book to be something that, like, if you had never touched Vadi before, and, but you would just somebody had referenced it to you or linked it to you, you would be able to pick it up, go through it, have a basic idea of how you're supposed to move, what the sword is, and the, the tactical and technical preferences of the, of the master. And on top of that, you know, I, like, like I said at the beginning, uh, the other thing I wanted to do was I wanted to make it as, um, um, as, as accessible as possible, not just in terms of like the written word, but also with video, because uh, where I got my start with HEMA was, was on YouTube videos, you know, was, was finding people putting themselves out there and just allowing their interpretations to be seen. So included with the text, I did a whole uh, video series of all of the important uh, parts that are written in these chapters because there is no pictures really until you get to the grappling sections of the, of the book to go along with it so that if the pictures weren't really cutting it for you or if like my written word wasn't cutting it for you, you would have a video reference right there. And so, like, with this vision in mind, I just powered on through uh, with, with Ian being uh, my guiding light as an editor <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and, to, and to help me along with this translation of the text. So it's a multimedia experience. Uh, you've taken a very different approach uh, to, you know, putting the material out there um, based on your needs when you first got into HEMA, I guess. Guess so. Yeah. And um, this is like, this is a, a personal interest of mine because I frequently get folks on here and we kind of go across the topic of working from the sources. And you said yeah. something earlier about, I love the books. I'm always, I always hit the books. The books are the touchstones of HEMA, which I think is a, is a great way of looking at it. Um, yeah. And if we if we are try if we are as a community to distinguish our activity from other sword like act swords based activities, it's books that kind of are our distinctive feature, isn't it? Um, yeah. And while that is the case, I I think if we're honest with ourselves, the majority of people who study HEMA study it as a physical activity and not as an academic activity. You know, we've all got books on our shelves, but how often do we actually use them? Um, I'm not trying to sort of accuse anyone of dumbing down or anything like that. All I'm uh, all I'm suggesting is that it can be an intimidating uh, topic to, you know, turn, as I've said before many times on the show, taking someone's thoughts, 
putting them on paper, translating them through time and space, like over several centuries into our language, and then translating that into physical, back into physical movements again, is a long, tough process. Yep. And it needs a lot of hands to the pump, but it's not, it isn't straightforward. It, it requires so much mental energy. And like you saying, like you had the lockdown time to, to throw yourself at this. Um, I wondered, like, as an instructor, you're now an instructor at Philadelphia Common Defences Guild, what your approach is to teaching historical fencing as someone who is a real advocate of studying the literature? Well, you know, uh, I've tried many different approaches because I'm also learning myself, right? Like, like I said, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't really get into this. And, and, and like also you said, not all of us get into this wanting to be teachers. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's a real humbling journey uh, for yourself um, to kind of experience failure on that level um, where you might teach something, you might not be 100% with it, or you might go back and look at kind of what your original ideas were and then transition them uh, as time goes on. Um, you know, I, I kind of went through a bunch of different formative process uh, for when I was teaching Fiore and then when I was teaching, uh, when, when we switched over to teaching body. Um, and I, I attempted as, to throw as many things at the wall as possible to, to try to get my students to really fence the way I envisioned the sources to work, right? Um, and not only that, but bringing uh, the, uh, the historical sources into lessons without making it dry and with being something that people want to engage with, right? Because mm -hmm. they, are, they are scary. It's very scary to, to, to look at something um, and understand there's supposed to be something you're gleaning from it, but you might not just have any idea of how it is without understanding uh, a vast ocean of context and um, uh, uh, physical language, as you said, um, from 600 odd years ago. <laughs> it's, it's difficult and we, and we uh, have to really be down with being, with being wrong at times before you can kind of grow. Mm. Um, and what I did, um, and I, I can really say that the people that really assisted with my current focus on, uh, on teaching and, and on, on pedagogy as a whole would likely be Stevie and Stephen Cheney and Adrian Pomelet and uh, a lot of folks on the international HEMA discord. Um, because our, our current, uh, method of teaching students at PCFG has radically changed. You know, I used to kind of run a basic, uh, martial arts setup where I do warm-ups at the beginning of classes, we do a couple of drills, we look at a technique from the day, we'd read from the book, and then we kind of approach things from having students just kind of do things statically and slowly um, on their own, and then myself and the other senior students throwing on gear, and then do them doing things in a moving facet where myself and two other folks that would have gear, we'd give the students steel swords, they'd come up and do the technique to us, go to the back of the line, and follow on through. But what I realized was that um, there is a lot of pressure involved with wanting to do the thing right uh, from how it's taught to begin with, right? If you show a student the answer to a problem, so you could say as, as a technique is, um, and then having the fear and kind of analysis paralysis that comes with it, like uh, how am I supposed to move my legs? How am I supposed to move my arms? Am I doing this the right way? Am I in the right position? Does it look like does it look right to my to my uh, 
to my fellow student, doesn't look like too much, doesn't look right to my instructor, so on and so forth, right? And that can be a lot of a burden on the student's part, right? Yeah. And so what, uh, so what I did instead was this year coming back after the pandemic, I invested heavily in making things as um, low gear restrictive to students as possible, right? Um, and putting sparring games at the forefront of our of our pedagogical experience, right? Mm -hmm. So getting students to uh, fence with not steel uh, on their first day, but with foam instead. Um, you know, the Spesco and Al swords are wonderful at this because while they can still um, cause injury, right? But they're they're much safer to a lesser degree. You don't have to drop a uh, thousand U.S. dollars on a full steel kit to spar with them. You need some lacrosse gloves, you need a fencing mask, and a gorget, too, if you want to make sure that your throat is, 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 is okay. But for, for day one, that's all you need. Um, and so using uh, this kind of constrained area of play to allow students to get a physical language without giving them super specific instructions um, and teaching them lessons on measure and on attacking and on guards and how different things work, without um, giving um, very specific instructions, right, uh, mm -hmm. to, uh, to, to possibly confuse folks, I let the game teach them the problem to begin with. And then afterwards, I introduce the, I introduce the system solution, right? Mm -hmm. um, so my students now have a physical language of how they are supposed to fence, and then the sources answer to those problems, right? And mm. that's when, after we've gotten done doing those things, we look at the foundational techniques from the sources with me quoting them or bringing along my book so that they can see them if they need to. Mm -hmm. So it's a classic kind of, uh, here's the problem. What do you think the solution is? Workshop it. This is what Master Vardy suggests. See how you... Exactly. How it, how it goes when you apply his his uh, principles. Um, I really like, like, there's a bit of a kind of a divide between people about foams and stuff, but the fact that using, and there's no edge and, you know, it's not weighted correctly or whatever, but, you know, I think the benefits outweigh the drawbacks. You know, okay, it's not a real steel sword or whatever, but it's low gear so your movements aren't restricted by the gear so much um mm. and you can go at more like a realistic speed uh without fear of of serious injury um it's yeah it's a good one especially in like hot weather as well uh yeah and if you've got to equip a whole bunch of people who might not necessarily have uh access to gear um or funds for gear it's, it's, a, it's a great way of doing it um we are almost at half past. So let me, uh, we've already got two questions in the question box. So those of you watching at home, um, if you want to ask Connor a question about body, about teaching, about longsword, anything, uh, keep it on topic. Uh, <laughs> there is a button at the bottom of your phone screen. It looks like a speech bubble. There's two questions in there right now. So hit that button, type in your question, and we will read it out. So let's just see what we've got. Both from antioxidant. Uh, one. Uh, note for pre, oh sorry. Uh, how did PCFG, Philadelphia Common Fences Guild, build such an apparently radically inclusive club without coddling bigots? 
Well, uh, you know, uh, we don't tolerate racists and uh, pieces of shit. <laughs> we, 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 we've always been openly and outwardly uh, accepting of, of anybody that is willing to join our club and anybody that wants to come and fence as long as you follow our guidelines, you know, and, and putting um, a message out that, you know, our, our class is open to the LGBT plus community and open to any persons of color that are interested in coming to uh, coming to fence has just been broadcasted clearly and plainly with no, uh, with, with, with no, no possible wiggle room, right? You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't, I, I don't tolerate that, and uh, nobody at the club does. <laughs> and uh, just putting that message out there that things are like that, this is a safe place for you to be, makes the world of difference. Yeah, I, th I think that's the key. Um, it's it's not necessarily being open to things. It's it's saying it out loud. You, you specifically, you whoever yeah. you are, whoever it is that you think isn't there but should be there you are welcome here um and um yeah you know that tends to be a good filter for bigotry anyway um just saying that like as you as you probably know about this channel um that's something that we're often uh trying to encourage is diversity and inclusion in the HEMA community it's a very male white uh, cishet space very much yep. so um, uh -huh. and it, it's it's uh, it's an ongoing project to try and make it more inclusive um, so I you know it's it shouldn't be you know a radical thing to in, be inclusive and diverse I think because that just represents the world that we live in um, what's what it's I think yeah what i think is odd is only catering or only attracting a specific demographic to our art um it's you know the it's about removing those barriers uh, by being uh, vocal and clear about who is welcome and sometimes who isn't welcome um so i think he had a, a sort of follow-up here um oh we got some more questions popping in um yeah, as just a sort of addendum from Antioxidant. Note for previous question, many members of uh, Philadelphia Common Spencer's Guild are trans, queer and people of colour, um, which is great. Uh, next question from Motordyke, uh, my friend Gideon. Do you find that having students who have their own take on Vardy changes your view on the text? Has that ever happened, Connor? People come in with a different idea to you? Well, shit, you know, uh, <laughs> part of, part, part of, uh, part of, uh, being, um, part, part, part of trying to take interpretation, like, very seriously is being okay with other people introducing new thoughts to yourself and having to look at things from outside of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. You, you don't always have the answers. I don't always have the answers. And having another perspective come in and, uh, just looking at it from, from another person's point of view can help you understand how things work better, you know, and mm -hmm. 
a lot of what we do is kind of like scientific method, right? You have a hypothesis, you test it out, you see it work, you see if it works, you see if it doesn't work, and then you advance with the thing that makes the most sense to you according to the context and according to the history of the source, right? And if somebody else has a better idea than me, you're damn right I'm going to introduce that into my curriculum and then credit them. Mm-hmm. Just how it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's the willingness to, to listen, take on board, uh, and discuss. Because, I mean, it is, it's not the way that HEMA works. It is a collaborative is a collaborative exercise, right? Exactly. Uh, it's not just like some person with their ideas and everyone follows them. Um, more questions in here. Krieger Armory. Hey. Uh, hey. Do you recommend that your students have steel longswords that have the proportion body states? This is probably yeah. This is this is a question I get asked all the time, right? And uh, (laughs) yes, I I, I do recommend this to my students, right? Um, I have a a video that I did on my on my YouTube page about how to size a sword for yourself according to body. And uh, generally speaking, uh, I don't ask my students to get a custom sword unless they have already picked up something that is uh, that that is appropriate for what they're attempting to practice, right? Because custom swords are expensive and they take a lot of time, and I'd rather have folks who have something in hand that they can practice with, right? Mm-hmm. So what I tell them to do is, generally speaking, get what their measurements are according to body and then find the closest standard model um, uh, for, from, any of the, from any of the brands that we recommend uh, our students pick up from. Okay. So as close as we can get uh, at the lowest cost we can get basically what about what sword do you use uh connor i'm, ki- I'm curious to oh add. i lo- i love siggies siggies yeah i love i love siggies uh, i do like i do like the krieger i do like the krieger armory stuff they look fantastic i've, I've gotten the chance to fence with them a few times but siggy is my main is my go-to my main tool. Oh, there we go um uh, next another question from gideon uh any advice for using Finestra window and Sagittarius the Archer in full gear? So it, I, I'm taking it these are a bit awkward to do with all your gear on. So just okay, describe so I want you... for, the, for the podcast listeners, let's describe these two guards. Okay, so I want you to think of uh, a uh, of of I'm, I'm expecting most folks to be familiar with the Ringic Danzig Lev early uh, Lichtenhauer sources, right? So I want you to think about right ox, right? Crossed arms, hands at head height or above with, uh, with the point forward. Okay, yes, right there. I want you to stay in that position, okay? And I want you to bring your point, I want you to bring your point up high, like you're pointing towards the sky. Okay. So up. While keeping, yes, 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 right there, right there. Exactly, exactly right there. Yeah, mm-hmm, you, you got it, you got it, okay. So that is one of Vadi's predominant, like, high guards. Uh, and then the exact same guard uh, on the other side is called frontal. And what Sagittaria is, yes, exactly. Yeah. What Sagittaria is, is if, if, you, if you're in that position and then you bring the hands forward, like you're extending it all the way out in front of you at shoulder level uh, while keeping your wrists crossed. So I want you to stay in that wrists crossed position. Okay, go, go back to, <laughs> go, go back to, yes, okay. Now I want you to just push your hands forward while keeping them crossed like that. Like you're staying in ox, but you're, you're extending out for a thrust while keeping your hands crossed. Yes, right. like that, like that. Okay, right. yes. So, yes, exactly. You got it. You did this. Okay. Uh, so, use, <laughs> yeah. 
So, so, so using those two positions, I actually got, uh, I, I found somebody asking the exact same question on Reddit on RWMA not too long ago. And it's one of the most commonly asked questions when people are approaching body. And I'm actually going to be doing a video on this relatively soon because it gets asked so much so that folks have something that they can point to and they can, and they can use. So using those two positions um, is rather difficult because they uh, take kind of like a beat, like an additional like half tempo or tempo of time for you to uncoil your hands and attack or for you to make a, a tramazzone and then cut from them because mm. they are not just thrusting guards, but they are also cutting guards. Mm. Um, and that additional period of time um, does two things for us. It, allow, it makes the guards work better from further away, but it mm -hmm. also uh, kind of clues in your opponent that you are about to attack when you do uncoil and cut from them, right? Which, uh, as body practitioners, we should know is a good thing because we want to work from a mezzospada or a half-sword bind, right? Mm -hmm. So using those positions to chamber into a cut um, that the opponent is able to defend against so that they have to focus solely on defense in that time period gives us the ability to attack from the bind. That's how I use them typically. Or we can take that position, threaten with the point so that they have to defend against it, and then once they attempt to defend against it, hit them in another way. That's how I would use them. So it's, even, even if the case is they know what this guard can do, that's good. Because yes. they're going to be preparing for what they think you're going to do with it. Exactly. Because it does has to, it has multiple functions. Uh -huh. uh, people in the comments here are chatting about swords. How hard is it to start? Oh, that, what was it? Um, I have a question. How much? This is from Sword Two Seven Eight Zero. I have a question. How much does a good training longsword cost? Uh First and foremost, ask your, ask your instructor what the best weapon that you should get for the practice that you were doing is, okay? Yeah. Always ask your instructor first. Um, your instructor. And, gen and generally speaking, a, a good fencing sword will probably cost you anywhere from like 250 like $300 USD, at least I think. That's not including uh, shipping, handling, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, I recommend Siggy. I recommend... Krieger Armory, I recommend Regenier, I recommend VB, especially VB, they do very good prices for their steals. I like VBs. VB was what like got VB. me into Longsword, I was never interested in Longsword until I picked up this cute little tiny VB Longsword, I was like, oh actually, this isn't that bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, he gets answered, someone else answers him, a Knuckle guy says, a good feather can range from about 200 to $500. I'd recommend a Regenia standard for anyone just getting going. Solid value, no frills will last you until you know what you want in feathers, yeah. Um, yeah. It's solid advice. Um, and Sword2780 also asks, how hard is it to start your own HEMA club because I need people to practice with? Eh. <sighs> Neither of us okay. have started clubs. We've, we've taken them on. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I would, I would go on the various different uh, online communities that, that, that are available to you and ask around, you know, mm -hmm. see who in your immediate area is interested. There is social media as good and bad as it is, um, allows you the ability to connect to various places around you, right? And using, uh, you use the tools that you got. Um, yeah. Now, when it comes to starting a club, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> My go-to for someone starting a club would be the Facebook group Hema World Domination um, because it's easy to find. 
Hema World Domination is the group. And it's basically a group for club leaders and instructors. Uh, and it's full of solid advice in there. Um, it's well curated by Keith Farrell and co. So there's no, sorry. Um, so it's not it's not spammy. It's it's good solid advice, and you can search for things as well. Hema Club Finder. If you haven't already looked there, you'd be amazed how many people don't know that that exists. The Hema Alliance do a wonderful job of uh, mapping all the Hema clubs on Earth. Uh, so you, it might be the case that there is already one near you. I would recommend going to as many other clubs as possible before you start your own backyard club. Uh, or whatever, uh, just so you can benefit from learning from other instructors uh, than trying to reinvent the wheel. Uh, just from you know, just meet people, talk to them, get their advice, uh, glean as much as you can. Um, you know, wanting to start a Hema club because there is no club with you is a perfectly valid excuse to start a club. You know, uh, if there is absolutely no other option, then go for it. I mean, that's how these things all started in the first place. There was a need. Um, Chit chatting in here. Uh, Miller, like Sword says, depends on how you're wanting to run it. We started our club as a not for profit. And it took a lot of time and effort and government forms. If you're just wanting to start a study group first, much easier just to find people. Yeah, study group is probably yep. the easiest way to, to get it going than making it a big official club from the get-go. Just some pals. Yep. Usually it's just like, it's just two folks in their back, backyard with wooden swords. Uh, that's how these things often start. Uh, let's look at the official question box, see what's in here. Ah, it's uh, our, our old pal uh, Graham. Uh, the founder of Philadelphia Common Fences Guild. Oh, I can't, I'm going to get his questions in the right order here. Uh, how do you balance expectation for general skill sets to be gained versus a low pressure environment? Continued and part and uh, tournament participation. E.g., are there benchmarks for general practice, or is it different for students interested in sparring? So generally speaking, right, um, you know, I, I compete, I compete a decent bit, um, but I don't ever put that expectation on my students. Um, tournaments are a tool that we use to, uh, to, to get an understanding of our sources and to uh, kind of test the, the ability uh, that we have and our ideas, right? Um, that's kind of like the basic level. Once you feel like you have a firm understanding of how things work for you specifically, then you can start looking at uh, going to compete for greater uh, for, for greater aspirations, whether that be winning or just pulling off a technique that you wanna that you wanna uh, that you that you wanna pull off, right? Um, you know, in, in in our code of conduct for PCFG, I, I write there that um, you know your relationship with failure your relationship with failure has to fundamentally change for you to get something out of doing martial arts and HEMA specifically. Because there's a lot of losing that comes before you start to win. Um, and kind of understanding the uh, pressures um, and pains that come with taking an L uh, is, is difficult. It's difficult for everybody. Nobody wants to, nobody wants to get knocked out. Nobody wants to, uh, not knocked out as in like get knocked out of tournament. Nobody wants to, nobody wants to lose, right? But that's part of the process of getting better. And the way I kind of, uh, I, I kind of 
talk to this about my student. I, I talk to this with my students is I try to be as nurturing as possible. I try to be as understanding as possible. If it's something that is big enough to where it has to be a group wide discussion, we have that discussion because the only way that this stuff works is if we have open and honest communication amongst all of us, right? Um, and with low pressure um, environments for um, for competition, it's a it's a hard it's a hard balance to find. Um, mm. We we do. Um, uh, myself and the Philadelphia European Martial Arts Collective, PMEC clubs, and it's all the clubs in the Philly area, we run monthly and bi-monthly intramural tournaments that are tests for rules um, that, we've, that we've developed along with just getting tournament experience under our students' belts where um, instructors do not compete. We, we recently cut, cut instructors out of being able to compete and just have our students go and fence so that they can understand how tournaments work, how to judge without the pressure of it going up on HEMA ratings or there being some big prize at the end of, at the end of the event, just so that they can figure out if tournaments are what they want to do. Um, and, and, and not just in competition, but also in terms of judging, in terms of helping running a table, in terms of like event organizing period, right? Um, yeah. And that's kind of, the, the, kind of the bridge that I found to be our best middle point, but still, you know, it can be a lot for folks. And if, if that isn't your bag, that's okay. Uh, there's always a spot for anybody that wants to come and just fence and then look look at sources and read. You don't have to go to you don't have to go to tournaments. <laughs> we we run a little interclub in, in just within our club tournament. Like we run a tournament in the club one night. We will have a prize. Well, it'll be like a tub of candy or sweets or something. Yeah, yeah. And we'll call it the Haribo League or the Haribo Cup or whatever. Uh, because we found, like, even though, you know, there's no medals or whatever, having a thing just kind of focuses people. You know, wow, you're going to get a tub of sweets at the end of it. It's still, you know, it's just nice to have a thing. And it keeps it, like, it keeps it, like, not too pressured. And it allows people, as you say, to um, experience the tournament environment without the, the huge pressure that can come uh, from an official tournament. And also, fundamentally... It allows a club to uh, train people to be referees, judges, table uh, table staff, etc., which is the lifeblood of, of tournaments. So for you know, for a tournament, you will need way more staff than you will competitors. Uh, so that that's the kind of unspoken thing I think that goes on that people may not be aware of. Uh, and those you know, becoming a becoming a, a referee is a is a bit of a process you know it's a lot of responsibility and we need more of those um yeah our friend uh sword 2780 says i was just going to do a study group with my purple heart armory synthetic longsword i got like three Ooh, that's great perfect there you go yeah perfect uh study group away uh there's more hema clubs in philly uh, are there any other f clubs in Philly? Yeah, there's plenty in the Philly area. Uh, look on the club finder. Uh, like as you say, you have like interclub uh, get-togethers regularly. Um, yep. doo -doo -doo. Right, we've got those. Oh, more questions here from. No. Oh, we're talking about the griff. The symbol of Philadelphia Common Fences Guild is three arrows in a griffin. Where does that come from? Uh, you'll have to ask Graham. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's an owl. It's a griffin. Uh, it's an, an arrow, a pierced griffin. 
Um, get the meatheadery out of HEMA. Yeah, yeah, I mean, competition, you know, I, this is something I wanted to kind of uh, ask you about, Connor, because mm -hmm. like, I know you, yep. you like to compete, but yep. you, you, you like to compete, you're also a very scholarly dude. Um, is competition for you, is, is competition your chance to see if Vardy was right? Yes and no, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like the, the, like, um, you know, for, for the longest time, like we kind of discussed a little bit before we got started is like, there's always been kind of like the split between scholarly approaches and then more physical approaches to HEMA. Um, and I, I like trying to split those things right down the middle because mm -hmm. the, the sources are touchstones to understanding the history and the context of, of how they fence. Right. Um, and what tournaments do is they apply pressure. Right. They apply psychological pressure onto the folks that are competing in those situations. Right. And that can be a lot for folks. Um, yeah. And uh, the the. Uh, the. Um, say? The context for our uh, for, for for our sport. Right. Um, is in some ways part sporting part uh, martial uh, martiality. Right. Like like fighting in a more martial context. Um, and. Uh, you have to you have to kind of try to find where the best uh, the best approach for you understanding the sources are, right? Mm -hmm. And part of that is you practicing at your club, reading the books, and another part of that is going to compete. And for me, competition um, is a chance to meet other folks, and it's a chance to take the stuff that I learned, and yeah, kind of see if body was right. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not the end all be all of that. Mm -hmm. So you know. Competition is scary. You could argue that it's meant to be scary. Uh, reading the sources is also scary, uh, but yeah. we want to try and make that more accessible. So if we're going to make uh, sources accessible, what do you think, um, you know, you've, you've said that in your, your work, your recently published book, um, was it it's called The Light of... Mars. Wielding the light of Mars. Wielding the light of Mars. Um, Mars being the god of uh, fighting, war, martiality. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have for would-be researchers of HEMA? That's not necessarily people looking to write a book. Um, when I say a researcher of HEMA, someone who wants to get more into the scholarly side of it, less the kind of physical, uh, athletic side of it, how do we approach the texts and how do we get how do we get those how do we make it a more accessible activity and less uh, intimidating for folks who want to study HEMA okay uh, so, so it, as I'm asking you because you're someone who's passionate about it and it obviously appeals to you if someone hasn't lit, lit that fire up inside themselves yet how do how do we get that to happen so um Part of it is kind of trying to take then and uh, take 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 the understanding of the book right at, from a scholarly perspective and then translating it into a physical perspective and then bringing it back to how to explain it in a way that makes sense to you. I cannot count the amount of times where I've been looking at a text and been like, okay, okay, this makes sense to me. How do I externalize that into a lesson, right? How do I give somebody a, a, a cue for them to get a picture of what is in, in my, in my meat brain. <laughs> right. Um, and 
from a scholarly perspective, right, it's not just learning how to teach other people that so that you have a, a, a language from them, from them that you can give to other people, but also looking at all of the um, uh, tertiary and secondary information that goes with the period that you're interested in, right? Mm. Go read, go read Telesti. Go read, um, uh, like, uh, I, can't, I can't remember the exact title of it, but it's all about, like, laws and, and like, feuding in, um, in like, mid-15th century Germany. Go read Mercenaries and Their Masters. Go read the books that kind of talk about the different periods um, on a more macro and on a more micro scale to get a better picture of who these people were and mm. what kind of life that they were living so that you can take that and then bring it to the table so then you can look at things. The mm. other thing, like I said, and like I will always say, talk to other people. You have to, it, it, you are not alone in any of this. Everybody that is interested in trying to bring these, these things into their practices and into their own study, there's a lot of them. Go, go talk to people on your discords, in your local groups, on Facebook. Um, you're never alone in your pursuits of, of, of learning how to learn uh, and, and divining what the sources have to say. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I would say to would-be scholars. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to look other places to understand the sources that you're reading. Um, and uh, don't be afraid to try to teach other people to see if they are picking up what you're putting down. Ooh. I think it, if you think about it, like this is probably one of the most nerdy things you can do, uh, Hema. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> if you just lean into that and approach it like a nerd, so like, I want to read, you know, it's like, these are the characters. If you think of like the 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 masters as characters, sorry, my. So the if we think of the masters as being characters, what kind of a world did they live in? It's just you know kind of bring it alive. That's what we mean when we say context matters. Okay, it's not just like situational context. It's like you say, it's the macro context of of you know what was Europe like at that time? How did people live? Um, you know, that can take you down multiple rabbit holes. Uh, and, you know, and, and that's what sort of nerdy folks like us are into is disappearing down all these rabbit holes uh, and finding out all this stuff. And I guess that's how you ended up uh, getting into Bali. But yeah, so, you know, approaching it also on a kind of human level, like looking at how people lived rather than just these are you know, looking at the sword as a utilitarian object for killing, like, you know, it's, it's also a fashion accessory, it's also a status symbol, uh, you know, there's, there's... And it was for fun, because fencing was fun back then, too. It, yeah, <laughs> cool, and they're fun, and they always have been. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, that's a great way to sort of look at it. Um, someone's recommending some reading here there are dozens of us dozens uh, abundant artists the martial ethic in early modern germany that's by the one I was, yeah. and lusty that's the book you were trying to recall yep. so yeah that's a, a a nice contextual uh reader for folks to get into uh, another question here in the box steward of rohan have hey. you found have you found any benefits to exploring other fighting groups, historical Africa, martial arts, boha, foam, FCA, etc.? Uh, well, let me just say that 
I love anybody doing swords any way that they feel like they should do swords. Um, we do have a local historical African martial arts group who have come to teach us Al Matreg um, at, a, at a practice. Uh, shout out to Samuel Goodwin. That was an awesome class. It was a great day. Um, you know, I think that there is importance in understanding not just the HEMA community, but also the broader historical uh, martial arts community. Reach out to the folks that are interested in the same things that you are, just a little bit different, right? There are so many people that, that want to be uh, uh, that, that want to be involved in, in their own slice of, of kind of what we're doing, right? In in a, in a different way, um, and making those connections and, uh, and and joining communities together so that we can all kind of approach approach things from a different perspective, but together is a great thing. Um, I know that I'm interested in possibly uh, you know talking with some folks who do uh, uh, ACL or, or, or Bohort or whatever the case may be, because I'm getting, I'm getting um, into harness fencing uh, quite soon. I, yeah, I'm in the process of getting myself a suit of armor. And talking to people who have spent more time in armor than me is probably a good idea. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. But just to finish, I, I, I wrote down your quote, your relationship with failure needs to change to, to learn martial arts. Um, you know, you've got to take a lot of losses before you get some wins. It's, you know, losses are stepping stones to success. They're not uh, a setback. They are teaching moments, uh, which is a brilliant reminder for everyone out there. So leads me to say, uh, Connor Kemp, Cal, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me, friend. You're very welcome and take care. You do the same. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. To show your appreciation, please give us a five-star review on your podcast platform or support our work by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash swordwomen. Go to at swordwomen on Instagram to see upcoming interviews or visit bythesword.net to learn about our events or visit our Facebook page, By the Sword. Thank you.